David, uh, thank you so much for coming and talking to me. Um, you'll have to excuse me uh, with the tech issues, and I'm probably going to be a little slow on the uptake in general, given it's fairly early in the morning here. So um, I, I'm probably, I, I'm kind of, I like mornings as much as uh, Ted Kaczynski probably likes tech. We could put it that way, maybe. So, so I initially became aware of you when I came across your publication, uh, Technological Slavery, um, which is composed, of course, of Ted Kaczynski's original manifesto and also a very interesting correspondence over a period of years between yourself and Ted Kaczynski, which I thought was fascinating uh, stuff. Um, so I've given listeners a brief overview of some of your history and interests. However, um, perhaps you could give us briefly um, an overview of what your, your interests are currently and, and some of the things that you work on and uh, are engaged in. Sure, that's, that's uh, no problem. Um, so, yeah, I'm a, a, I got a, a PhD in philosophy, uh, received that in 2001 from the University of Bath in England. Um, <clears throat> the area of special specialization in, in the thesis was philosophy of mind. Um, pretty quickly, within a year or so after that, I started teaching at the University of Michigan at the Dearborn campus and taught there for about 15 years. Uh, recently left there to do some uh, let's say, independent work, some freelance teaching and so forth. Uh, in fact, uh, I just recently got back from uh, the University of Helsinki in Finland. I was teaching a course in philosophy of technology there. Um, so my, my areas of interest, uh, of course, are technology. Uh, I've had a longstanding interest in problems of, of technology, in the philosophy of technology. Uh, this goes back years, uh, yeah, a number of decades, e even before there was a Unabomber. Uh, I guess I was a, a skeptic or a critic of uh, modern technology. Um, so that's one of my areas of, of specialization. Um, published a major book uh, on that called The Metaphysics of Technology in 2015 with Rutledge. So that's my major statement on, on that topic. Uh, it's quite critical of modern technology. Uh, I also, like I say, with my PhD, I've done work in philosophy of mind, in particular panpsychism, and published a couple of books in that area. Uh, my other interests are in environmental philosophy and environmental ethics. So uh, I've published a number of articles and essays, edited a couple of books, including a textbook in environmental ethics. Um, so that's that's uh, most of my background. Spent several years working with a prominent eco philosopher named Hendrik Skolomowski. Uh, he passed away a few years ago, but uh, I worked with him for uh, a good three decades, um, uh, developing ideas and helping him edit his books and so forth. Mm, sounds busy. So uh, Henrik is uh, his book is something that exposed me for the first time to eco theology, and um, I believe it's one of the areas that you're interested in. First off, just to, just to kick things off and give people a little bit of context, um, and perhaps give that context in the frame of Ted Kaczynski and who he was and what you had to do with him. Um, I guess Ted has been, you know, somewhat of an infamous 
folk hero lately um, amongst many people, um, you know, and I don't think it's to do with political persuasion or anything like that. He just seems to have caught on to the zeitgeist, so to speak, and, and his work is becoming increasingly popular uh, with people. Um, interestingly, there's a lot of TV shows and, and stuff like that that go through his, uh, you know, infamous terrorist actions, I suppose, but there's, there's a whole other side to Ted Kaczynski that people don't know about. How did you come across Ted Kaczynski? Uh, you did mention that you were skeptical of technology prior to coming across him. Um, how does one come across Ted and, and when did this happen? Was this in the early 90s or what kind of time period are we talking here? Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, it, it goes back to the, the whole Unabomber saga, right, which goes back, I guess, technically to the late 70s. Um, so, you know, that was that for, for several decades, right, he was this sort of this mysterious mail bomber who sending packages in the mail and injuring people and then killed uh, one or two people. Eventually, I guess, three people died. Um, for a long time, for the for several decades, they, they knew nothing about uh, who this Unabomber person was. Uh, then I think it was in the early 90s that uh, it came out that there was actually uh, this manifesto, a document that had been written by this person or group they did not know at the time. And it turned out it was a strongly critical document uh, of industrial society, industrial technology. Um, <clears throat> so I remember at the time, I was, like I say, I was already a critic of, of technology. Skolomowski, in fact, was one of the early philosophical critics of technology, and I was familiar with all of his works, of course. I had read books like uh, Jacques Ellul's uh, book, The Technological Society, which is a uh, sort of a central text in this whole critique of technology. Um, so I was familiar with a lot of these ideas, and I was quite surprised in the Unabomber case when this manifesto started appearing in, in the newspaper. They would they would release just short little, little snippets, just one sentence or two sentences or maybe a small paragraph from the manifesto, um, just enough to, to sort of really whet your appetite, right, to, to see that something was going on. There was some real intelligence behind this, this person or group that was doing this, uh, it was it was quite a fascinating time. Uh, I recall in the uh, early and mid '90s, as as this material was slowly seeping out through the through the newspapers. Um, you know what what was in this sort of document, and then then of course eventually it came out that this this uh, person or group wanted this thing published uh, in exchange for stopping to stopping sending the mail bombs. And that's, of course, exactly what happened, right? This was in, uh, what was it, September 1995 uh, that the Washington Post published the full manuscript, basically gave, gave in to the blackmail with the, with the concurrence of President Clinton at the time, uh, published the entire manifesto in the newspaper. Um, so that was, the, uh, like everyone else, that was the first time that I was fully aware of, uh, of the document and, and the ideas in it. So you would have to say, for better or worse, what he did kind of worked, didn't it? Because you can't imagine him having the same impact as an uh, academic necessarily or um, uh, giving the work the same notoriety as it perhaps has as a result of what happened. 
No, exactly right. In fact, uh, as far as we know, that that was the entire motive for the bombing uh, spree was to gain the notoriety to force the publication of the manifesto in a high visibility venue, like a major newspaper or, or magazine. Um, to to have an impact, so uh, in, in a sense, uh, yeah, that that was the goal, and the and the goal was achieved. So it was. I remember really being shocked when this full document was printed in in the paper, and I and I remember immediately thinking, "Wow, the, this guy won! He won just by getting this thing published. He was able to force it in, and at the highest levels of the U.S. government, they they had to uh, yield." to his demand because they could not find him. They could not stop him. And they figured that was the only way to uh, try to break the case was to actually publish the, the full document. Uh, and they did. So in, in that sense, uh, he, he won. He, he gained his, his, his main goal at that point. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I think a lot of people focus on the, the morality of his actions entirely, which there's a place for that probably. Um, but but in terms of what he wrote and, and the person he is, I, I kind of find that less interesting and relevant than than the text that that came out of this and uh, and how widespread it's become since. So, just for the audience at home, can we kind of recap briefly Ted's thesis and basic cause, uh, just in a general sense, the things that he considered to be. Uh, bad for humanity, why, and what perhaps the inevitable outcomes of that would be um, if we continued down that path of, uh, you know, technological slavery. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, his critique was of industrial technological society, which he famously said at the beginning of the manifesto has been a disaster for the human race. Um, so his basic picture is of a, of a, of a sort of a system run amok, right? It, it's uh, this, this technological monstrosity, which which is causing harm to humans by uh, controlling their lives, you know, putting them in de dehumanizing situations, uh, manipulating how, how they live and how they spend their personal lives and their professional lives. So it is this controlling force over humanity. Uh, it's destructive of nature. Uh, in, in a sense, really all our major environmental problems are, in a sense, technological problems. Um, so we have this system which is, uh, over centuries, has been gaining power over humans, over nature, causing problems to humans and, and the natural world. Um, it's growing beyond our control. It really is like like running amok. It's, it's, it sort of evolves on its own, its own terms and its own conditions. So we cannot control this thing. We cannot stop this thing. And if it continues, it will utterly crush humanity, crush the planet. Um, you know, what that means is not really clear. It could be a kind of enslavement of all of human beings. It could be the literal extermination of the human race. Uh, it could uh, potentially obliterate life on Earth. Um, so this is what we're facing, and, and Kaczynski further added this, this idea that um, there's no way to, not only can we not stop this thing, we cannot fix it, we cannot alter it, uh, and we cannot reform it to stop it from creating these, these negative outcomes. So basically, they are inevitable. As long as the system exists, it will continue to expand and evolve. It will grow beyond our control. It will, uh, like I said, destroy pretty much everything in its path. 
and uh, reform is impossible. And therefore, the only alternative is to end the system now while we still have a modicum of control. And this is his revolution thesis, right? Uh, he, he, he's calling explicitly for a revolution against modern technology, saying basically we need to end the system. We need to bring it down now before it's too late, before we uh, either lose all power to bring it down or before humans are, are completely enslaved or, or completely eliminated by this expanding system. That's a great summary. Um, this is kind of a little off track, but it, did TED express a sweet spot for technology? So, for example, I, I get that, you know, we have computers and nuclear weapons and stuff. But on the other hand, um, is, is there like a cutoff point? So do we go back to stone axes and wearing bearskins or, you know, can we can we go back to 18, the 18th century or something? Like, is there a kind of sweet spot? That he thought existed. Uh, well, that, that's a good question, you know. And I, I had wondered that early on myself. He talks about um, in the manifesto. He talks about the industrial revolution as being a disaster for the human race, and it makes you think that he's talking about the developments since the industrial revolution, which was say the mid 1700s uh, onward. And I queried him about that in, in one of my early letters to him. It, which it sort of implied that, well, if we could only go back to, say, just before the Industrial Revolution, well, then maybe th everything would be okay. Uh, but he rejected that idea pretty firmly to, to me in, in some letters to me. Um, his view was basically if you're going to revolt against this monst monstrous system, um, it, the revolution will be sort of a, a catastrophic collapse, prob probably, let's, let's say an uncontrolled collapse which doesn't mean fast. It could be a slow kind of breakdown over time. But basically, it's a, it's a sort of a progressive breakdown of the system, which he says, basically, we cannot uh, program in where to stop. So, you know, even though maybe in one sense, we might like to stop just prior to the Industrial Revolution, he says, uh, basically, once the system starts um imploding, as it were, uh, that, that basically we will not be able to stop it until it sort of crashes all the way to the ground. And that will put us back at a very low level of existence, um, conceivably something like hunter-gatherer existence, probably very small-scale agriculture, sort of hard to envision any, any future where there's not some kind of agriculture at this point. Um, but it would be a very, very low-level uh, existence, uh, certainly in any case. Mm. Interesting. So he has quite, quite an extreme outlook, obviously on, um, does he believe it's preferable to go there? Is it a preferable place to be, to be a hunter gatherer subject to those kind of environmental pressures that I suppose humanity, uh, co-evolved with uh, for so long before, before we kind of thrust ourselves out of that, that paradigm? Yeah, I mean, certainly. I mean, you know, I mean, it's like anything is preferable to what we've got today, right? Which is this, uh, you know, out of control system, which is which is just you know degrading and debasing humanity at a minimum and potentially going going to destroy us. So, uh, yeah, by all means, hunter gatherer is preferable. And, and in fact, I mean, you can make an independent case that really that's our. I mean, it seems pretty pretty crude compared to today, but but that's our long term mode of successful existence. Uh, 
right? So humans, human, the genus Homo has been around for well over 2 million years. And for 99.9% .9 of that time, we were hunter-gatherers. So we evolved genetically and psychologically to be hunter-gatherers. And we were able to do that indefinitely. We survived. The planet survived. Um, you know, okay, we drove some large-scale, large mammals to, to extinction in the process. But basically, basically, it was a stable, long-term, uh, sustainable um, situation for the human race. And certainly that would be preferable, I'm sure, to Kaczynski and, and probably to a lot of other people. That would be preferable to a, to a runaway system, which is the degrading and destroying uh, all of nature at this point. Mm, interesting. Yeah. I've got to say where, where I've traveled to places where people do live closer to that hunter-gatherer mean, I suppose, um, they do seem a lot happier. I've got to say, just <laughs> in general, I'm sure they face things that are harsh and, and difficult, but uh, put it this way, they're not on SSRIs and, uh, you know, anti-anxiety pills or anything. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They're not on, uh, right, antidepressants and uh, taking drugs and, uh, you know, and schizophrenic. Uh, I mean, no, everything that, that we know, the simpler technological existence is, which is far better for our physical and our mental health. Um, I mean, obviously, there's certain things you cannot treat if you don't have advanced technology. And this is one one of the things that people always bring up is, you know, you don't have advanced medicines and, and surgical treatments and so forth. Um, but of course, on the other side is you don't have a lot of the problems that gave rise to the need for modern medicine and modern surgical techniques. Um, so, for example, things like, well, like depression was basically a modern industrial disease that we have... Uh, strong evidence that depression virtually did not exist, even, even say, at the time of ancient Greece, right, uh, the, which was well after hunter-gatherer existence. And things like cancer, which is still a, a very, uh, uh, you know, major cause of suffering and illness and death for humans. Cancer is also modern industrial disease, which basically did not exist uh, prior to even the 1600s. So, so you know, the, the, the lack of the need to treat cancers is irrelevant when you don't have cancer. And that's basically what we would be looking at if we lived a simpler and more natural uh, sort of existence. It's, um, it's interesting. I always thought there was an element as well, <clears throat> and this, this is going to sound kind of harsh, but I think as far as I understand Darwinian um, natural selection, um, that death is inevitably a way that um, the species weeds out, um, how would you say, um, genomes that aren't kind of strong or able to adapt. And that, that process is quite important to maintaining, you know, healthy people overall. And there seems to be an aversion in modern society of allowing that process to, to actually just... Uh, how would you say? Everyone needs to survive and no one can die. There's definitely that, that kind of attitude with modern people. Um, and, and I think it probably that process should be to some degree allowed to, uh, to work as, as, as it's meant to. Yes, that's a very important point, which very few people understand, I, I think. Um, you know, one of, one of the things that people like to of trumpet about modern technological society is the high uh, life expectancy and the high lifespan. And they say, well, look, you know, what's a life expectancy in a modern society is 80 years, 80 or 85 years in some cases. And they say, well, look, in these primitive societies, 
average life life expectancy was what mid thirties or mid twenties in some cases, right? And 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 they'll point to this like, well, we've made this tremendous progress, but um, but it's a highly misleading because, as you say. Um, lower life expectancy in, in more primitive societies was almost entirely due to infant mortality. And you have to figure in infant mortality and, and say early childhood mortality, say within the first year or two, uh, you have to figure that into the, into the total life expectancy. And certainly simpler societies lost a larger percentage of their infants at, at birth and in that first year. And the reason they lost those is because those there was something wrong, right? I mean, that, that's why they died. There was a uh, kind of a genetic defect or a weakness or a susceptibility to disease that caused the infant to die. And, ex and exactly as you say, right? I mean, there, the, the, there's a logic to that, right? Na nature does that. It, it, uses, it uses this process by producing more offspring than is needed for the species uh, to allow uh, weak variants to to be to be killed off, frankly, so they don't reproduce, and keeping the more robust and the healthier members of that species, and allowing them to reproduce, and that's how nature functions in every every species on this planet. With modern technology, we've altered that process, and now, as you say, basically every infant survives, every baby survives, uh, at least. As, certainly as much as possible, at least to uh, early adulthood, frequently where they're able to, to marry and have children. They reproduce as well. And what that does is that reproduces in the next generation uh, genetic defects and weaknesses that would normally have been filtered out of the, out of the process. So on, on the one hand, we can say, well, look, it's wonderful. Every, every baby survives and the children grow up and they get to have their own, their own families, which on an individual level, of course, is wonderful, but on a species level, that's catastrophic because it allows genetic uh, errors and uh, and defects to accumulate and to grow within the human species, within our population uh, of of human beings, and and that alone is a potentially catastrophic uh, scenario, uh, which could cause major problems in in uh, in a very short period of time, in not many more decades. We're already seeing some effects. And this is a rapidly compound, compounding process, which could could really cause insurmountable problems uh, in, in a very short period of time. Mm, sure. And I often wonder if a lot of the madness we're seeing at the moment can be derived from that. Obviously, the brain is a, is a large portion of uh, the phenotypes representation, the genetic uh, representation of the individual. And I often wonder if aberrant behavior and Silly behavior could be driven by this kind of lack of uh, evolutionary pressure that we've experienced over the last, you know, 150 years in the West. Yeah, certainly. Well, there, there will, be, will be both physical and psychological or mental effects. I mean, that's virtually guaranteed. So, um, so yeah, me mental. I, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to quantify. I think at this point, but you know, what would count as mental illness is growing, schizophrenia is growing, aberrant behaviors, antisocial behaviors, uh, yeah, depre obviously depression and attention deficit, and and a lot of these a lot of these psychological illnesses are really pervading society. That's and that's going to have profound effect in in many areas, right? I mean, it's going to affect uh, whatever you know. Uh, economics and purchasing preferences and how people spend their time and their participation in political processes and 
you know, you name it, every aspect of society will be affected by that. And I guess more resources will be given to trying to sort these problems out, um, you know, and probably it's going to be a fairly hopeless endeavor, I would imagine. Well, sure. We'll, we'll use all these problems as, as basis for claiming we need yet more technology and more technological intervention to solve these problems which technology itself has created, which is really an ironic situation. So you get this self-perpetuating process where the, the, the failures of technology uh, bring rise to a, a demand for more technology. So we'll be doing you know, more harsher interventions and we'll be doing genetic manipulations in, in the womb, you know, and in human DNA and living human beings. And, you know, you can, you can only imagine what can go wrong in those scenarios. Yeah, 100%. I, um, there's actually a prominent YouTuber that has this theory called the re revolutionary phenotype. And his theory is that when geneticists start to mix artificial intelligence with the ability to manip manipulate the genome, then in effect, we will lose complete control of our species. We're, we'll, we'll become like the next layer of... You have RNA, DNA, and that, that we will become the next layer on, in that process. And in effect, we will hand over complete control of the species to technology, potentially, which I think is a fascinating theory. Yeah, conceivably at some point, right, if uh, you get some ultra-advanced artificial intelligence process, which is carrying on its own genetic manipulation of, of humans or life in general, then, uh, yeah, that's uh, absolutely frightening. Yeah. Printing, printing humans, I think is the way he puts it. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So ju ju uh, just quickly returning to Ted's ideas. So we've kind of gone through what he thinks, uh, potentially some of the consequences. Um, in your own work, how has it impacted your work and, and how, how much of this do you subscribe to? Are you taking all of this and embracing it in your own philosophy or have you gone, so, sorry, kind of gone other places with it? Well, like I said, I was I was uh, an anti-technology critic uh, well before there was a Unabomber. So, so when the manifesto came out in '95, um, uh, I was familiar with the arguments. I was familiar with the ideas. Much of the material actually was drawn from Jacques Ellul's book, which I was familiar with. So I could see uh, sort of a, a, a rephrasing and an updating of a lot of familiar arguments. So in that sense, I don't think Kaczynski's work had that much direct effect on my thinking. I was already sort of thinking that way be before he came along. Um, I mean, he, he adds this new component that revolution is the necessary outcome because nothing else will work. Uh, so that's a pragmatic uh, innovation that he brings to, to the discussion, which I thought was quite interesting and I guess maybe in some sense I'm agreeing with him there that some kind of revolutionary action is in fact necessary if we want to survive in the long run. Um, one of the shortcomings of the manifesto was that he was not entirely clear what he meant by a revolution and what that would entail and what that might look like. He gave some general thoughts about how that might go. He said it could be fast or, or slow. It could be violent or relatively nonviolent. Um, but he didn't really give any kind of a detailed discussion or, or a roadmap for how, how that revolution might work. Um, so I've tried to sketch out some of those ideas in, in recent, my recent work. So there's a little bit in, um, in my book, The Metaphysics of Technology from 2015. 
I have a new chapter coming out in a, in a book early next year that I've called Creative Reconstruction, which is an elaboration of the final chapter of my book. Again, trying to sketch out a, a, a fairly strong uh, retracting of modern technology, uh, dialing it back over several by several hundred years over a period of about 100 years to get us to where we might be sustainable. So I guess that's my own sort of revolutionary thesis. Um, and uh, I guess the other, you know, the other piece that I've tried to bring in my book was a kind of a metaphysical description of technology, what, what this thing is, how it operates, uh, how it works in the world and how we should respond to it, uh, which I thought was really lacking, not only in Kaczynski, because he's not really much of a, He's not really a metaphysical philosopher at all. He's a very pragmatic sort of fellow. Uh, so he doesn't talk about this metaphysical basis of technology. Uh, you have to go back to people like, uh, well, not even Olul didn't really talk about it. Heidegger did a couple of way, uh, times in the, in the, in the mid-40s, but it was very obscure, typical Heidegger sort of talk. And, and of course, I think by his own admission, I don't think he was satisfied in the end with what he came up with. I thought I read that somewhere. But... Heidegger? Yeah, well, exactly right. He, he and he sort of acknowledged the failing of his own ideas, and he's you know it was kind of this this sort of surrender in his in one of his last interviews before he died. Um, he basically said, "Ah, well, it's too late. We've lost uh, we, we've lost all hope, and we we don't know what to do. We just have to wait and see." So yeah. <laughs> so just quickly on that, we'll, we'll come back to the metaphy met, sorry metaphysics later um, because it's something I really want to talk about. But um, just quickly. Uh, on the idea of revolution, and one of the things in Ted's book that I found most surprising when I read it was how scathing he is of over, what he refers to over-socialized uh, leftists. Um, and I guess probably that probably means more so the modern left than it does the traditional, you know, labor working class left, I would imagine, but I don't really know. Um, so as an academic, and I guess it's generally accepted academia tends to be quite liberal, at least in the United States, I would imagine. Um, how, how, do, how do these people that, that you work with or you come across, how do they react to his ideas? Um, because in many ways, his scathing indictment of, of the, the social causes that they go for and all these kinds of things, um, and, and him painting them as essentially agents of this technological authoritarianism in, in some ways. How do people react to that in your experience? It's, it's one of the more surprising things I read in that book. Yeah, it, it is quite interesting. Uh, in fact, in the manifesto, uh, a large portion of the beginning, about the, about the first third of the, of, of the whole document is an attack on leftism, basically in various forms. And which is again, I was surprised as well. I, I I remember reading it for the first time, and and I'm a third of the way through it, and I'm thinking he's hardly mentioned technology at all. <laughs> you know, yeah, I thought this was supposed to be about technology, and and it really wasn't there until the the second half of the piece. Um, but it's a good point. In in the academia, yes, certainly uh, people tend to be left left on the political spectrum. Um, but in my experience, uh, not not many academics really understand the manifesto. I'm not sure they actually even really read it. Um, some of them probably maybe started to and then saw this critique of the, themselves, their own ideology and the leftists, and then and probably just bailed out at that point, probably didn't even read the whole thing. 
or they accepted some very uh, shorthand, uh, you know, news media, uh, you know, uh, Reader's Digest version of the ideas, and they and they latched onto that. Um, not many academics, uh, in my experience, really really uh, think much about technology. They don't really understand it. Um, even the philosophers that I work with, they don't really understand philosophy of technology. Um, so. Uh, yeah, I think the, the the people that I that I see just have generally not engaged with the ideas. They've generally ignored it. Maybe they felt personally affronted by his attack on leftists. I, I'm not sure. Um, uh, but but I mean, in a sense, that's separate from the problems of technology itself. It's it's a shame if if people let that aspect of the manifesto put them off from tackling the real issues. In my mind, which is which is the which is the problem of technology itself. Sure. Um, do you, do you think it has a part to play though? Um, like he did fairly explicitly go through it in a lot of detail. I mean, it, it seems like it, it's kind of happening. I mean, when when I read the book, I was like, God damn! Like, how did he know this back in the nineteen seventies? I mean, like, granted, I'm young, but um, I was really shocked at how prescient it it, it all was. It was quite amazing how he predicted it. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I, I guess the the, the 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 hallmark of the of the over socialized left is that they put all their emphasis on humanity. They're very human centered, and so they they really will do anything to maintain what they consider in the best interests of humanity, and they don't see a revolutionary action against technology, which which could be very painful for humanity. <laughs> they don't see that as, as necessary, important, or, or even a good thing because they just see that as creating a lot of suffering. So that's one problem. The other problem is they, they tend to uh, jump on board to sort of radical movements and either deliberately or unintentionally divert the movement from its original course to a pro-leftist, pro-humanist direction. Okay. So 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 leftists kind of kind of pose a, a sort of a double threat there and and I think you know t Ted could see like I say even in the uh, in the 80s and the 90s when he was finalizing this document that uh, you know leftists need to be avoided they need to be excluded from any revolutionary uh, action uh they're sort of soft-headed uh, you know, humanistic thinkers who can't really see what's best in the long term and, and are un, unwilling to undergo the kind of harsh action that's take that's required to to allow humanity and the planet to survive. Mm, sure. So, um, just returning to the philosophy of technology, um, could you just give us an overview of what that is? What, what does it entail, and what does it seek to achieve? So, right. I mean, uh, the philosophy of technology, like philosophy of anything, it's a very, it's a very general uh, concept, a very general phrase. Um, and I suppose it has different interpretations to different people. The way I've conceived it is, is basically as both, um, let's say, an ontological and an ethical uh, description of the phenomenon. So for technology, we want to know and I wrote this in my book, we want to know really what is this thing? What is it that we're dealing with? What is the essence or the essential nature of this thing? That's one question. Secondly, how does it operate in the, in the world? What does it actually do functionally in the world? 
And then thirdly, the sort of the ethical piece, right? What, what should we do if it's causing problems or causing harm? What should we do? How should we respond to this particular phenomenon? So for me, it's those three components uh, comprise what I would call philosophy of technology, right? One, what is it? Two, how does it work? And three, how should we respond to it? Okay. So assuming we know what it is, that it's destructive and it has all these um, unintended consequences on, on humanity and, and the earth, um, I want to talk for a moment about some solutions. And you've mentioned your book. I actually haven't read it yet, but I will be buying it and reading it now that I'm aware of it. Um, so um, what are some possible solutions? If we, if we take these things um, as truth, which they sound like pro they probably are, um, what, what are some ways that we can uh, reduce the impact of technology on, on us as a, as a species? Right. Well, there's sort of the, the obvious path and then the less obvious path. And, and I guess by the obvious one is the one that everybody wants to do. And they want to say, well, look, we'll just, if technology is causing problems, we'll just take the problems as they come one by one. We'll tackle each problem. We'll try to fix it with different technology or better technology or some, some kind of maybe passing new laws or something. And on a very piecemeal basis, we'll kind of modify and alter the thing and, you know, ban, ban the harmful chemicals and, you know, harmful radiation. We'll, we'll eliminate that. We'll just because we want to keep all the things that we like about it. Right. So there's this idea that we're going to we're going to get rid of all the bad stuff keep all the good stuff and we'll just progressively do this over time. And, and through this way, we will slow, slowly uh, reform and direct the process by which technology advances. And that's the very traditional standard approach that we always get from, from media and the government and corporations. This is, this is how they like to operate. Um, the, the problem is when you when you look at how technology works over time, uh, this this simply does not seem to work. The problems grow faster than we can tackle them. They become more severe over time exponentially. The complexity of the total system becomes so large that we become unable to to rationally devise real solutions, many times our solutions in themselves cause side effects or secondary consequences, in some cases which were even worse than the problem they were supposed to solve, strangely enough. So there's multiple reasons why, uh, when you look over time, and, and several observers have noted this, this is not just recent ideas, that, that this little incremental, gradualist sort of reform process simply does not seem to work. We, we, we you know, hammer down five problems and 10 new ones show up and they're twice as bad as the old ones, which suggests that something much more fundamental is going on and that a, a much stronger response will be needed if, if we hope to avoid the the worst outcomes which which are looming in the in the in the near future how far do you think tech needs to be rolled back what's your view on that yeah so that that's a good question i've thought about that for a while um and again this is in my book and uh, in my recent essay upcoming essay um I, you know I, I tend to agree and several thinkers have said look it's the industrial revolution is really sort of the accelerating downfall of uh, of modern society and the production of greenhouse gases and so forth. Um, so certainly, if, if you could plan something, you would want to uh, drive the system back prior to industrial revolution, which means prior to fossil fuel usage, 
prior to electrical electrical and electronic devices, pr prior to steam engines and so forth, all these things came about uh, beginning in the 1700s. So you need to sustainably go back at least that far. That seems to be a bare minimum if we want to uh, retract the system to where it's at a stable level. Um, I've argued that you need to go sort of even further back, uh, say a few hundred more years in time, to avoid the risk of lapsing back into these negative behaviors and negative technologies. If, you, if you're too close to the era of Industrial Revolution, uh, inevitably someone somewhere will slip back into the industrial mode and then pretty soon we'll start you know, mining coal and oil if we can and, and uh, the system may start itself up. So if you really want to uh, build in a margin of safety, you have to go back uh, a few hundred years prior to the start of the Industrial Revolution. In my book, I've argued we need to go back to uh, the 13th century, say the 1200s, to really, really be safe, to really get to a level where we can have a high level of culture and a high level of social quality of life, but with relatively simple and sustainable technologies. So, yeah, we need to go back 700, 800 years, something like this from, from where we are today to, to really survive, I think. Interesting. Yeah, I, I would argue that the high Middle Ages was uh, far more advanced culturally than probably we are today, actually. But that's an aside <laughs> anyway. Um, um, so um, in terms of agriculture, because I do a bit of stuff on agriculture, I, I talk to biodynamic farmers, other people like that. I mean, what kind of place do you see for agriculture in, in, this, in your scheme? In the scheme, yeah. Well, I mean, um, to, to me, agriculture is – probably inevitable like i say it's hard to imagine that you under any scenario which people in the future would be doing some level of agriculture probably not industrial agriculture right if, if the question is if you can uh well what kind of agriculture would you have without any fossil fuel usage right so you have no powered uh farm machines at all so we're back to using humans and animals basically so I, I think that's probably probably in the cards for the long-term future of humanity. If we are going to survive, we have to learn how to farm without any fossil fuel power at all. So we need, need to farm with human power and animal power. It will be like it used to be, very small-scale, uh, local, diverse crops, whatever survives and grows best in each local climate. Uh, you're not producing producing excess food products. You're not producing them for sale or export. It's all for local local consumption, uh, uh, local usage. Um, um, that's how it used to be for uh, you know a few thousand years, and that's probably how it's how it's going to be again. So I'm just thinking now, as you're saying this, if if there is an advantage to be gained by um, farming, uh, as you say, use of coal or oil. Um, for groups to perhaps dominate other groups, which seems to be a running theme through human history. Um, how do you build in a mechanism to avoid that temptation for groups to uh, use technology or technological advances for that purpose of domination of, of other groups? Because it seems to me to be a fairly big problem to, in, to ensure that that wouldn't be allowed to uh, 
you know, go wild. <laughs> right, exactly. It would seem like right, somebody somebody decides they want to have power over others and they develop the advanced tools and suddenly they wipe out the the more <laughs> the more primitive ones, right? Um Right. I, I think we have some built-in safeguards there, uh, at least with respect to fossil fuels. Uh, the current situation with fossil fuels is that we've used up all the easily accessible coal and oil, right? In the old days, a few hundred years ago, coal and oil were right at the surface of the earth. You, you just you, In some places, you just scratched away the dirt and there was coal. In some cases, oil was bubbling out of the ground. And you just scooped it up with a bucket. There you go, right? That's, that's as easy as, as it can be. Now, all that is gone. All the easy coal and easy oil is, is gone. And what we are extracting now is very deep-seated coal and oil resources, right? Very far underground, out at sea, and so forth, or through uh, complex processing of uh, tar, tar sands and so forth. Um, if the system collapses really to much of a degree at all, we will no longer be able to operate the infrastructure to access those fossil fuels. And when that happens, uh, no one will have access to them at all. So so there's no risk of somebody, you know, go, digging up some, some oil somewhere and making into petroleum and turning into fuel and making, you know, bombs out of it. I mean, it, it will be impossible to get that. Because it's all gone. It's it's far underground. It's far out at sea, and and people will not be able to get to that. So I think we have, fortunately, we have this built-in safeguard where where no one will be able to uh, really advance the technology for for good or bad, you know, for good purposes, or if they decide they want to dominate others, they will not be able to do it. And everyone will be on the same same level ground, right? They'll be using basic basic tools, uh, maybe simple metals, uh, you know, wood products and animal products, and and that's it. Yeah, you would imagine it would be the same for metals. All kinds of minerals would be almost impossible to access now that you mentioned that. I, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly right. So lots of lots of metals we've extracted again right from the surface, and we're digging down deep for those. Um, yeah, I, I mean it's in, it's it's a good question, right? How much how much metal is still accessible relatively easily? I, that's a good question. I, I don't really know that, but but I, I'm sure you're right. It's a lot less than it used to be, and a lot harder to get to. So even even metal tools, which we had even in antiquity, uh, those may be extremely hard to reproduce. You know, you, you we we may end up doing a lot of scavenging from the ruins of uh, you know all the metal scrap metal that exists around the world today. That may be our our sole source of metals for a long time. Yeah, sure, makes sense. Yeah, in Australia we have quite a lot of ore i would imagine and, and quite a lot on the surface but um i think by the time the chinese are done with that we we won't have a lot of easily accessible metal so um, right they're about they're about to extract all that for you and so you'll you'll be out of it soon enough pretty much and we're willing to sell it apparently so uh you know what the hell <laughs> um so um, another thing I'm interested in is eco-theology. So I'm, I'm imagining there's some sort of transcendent and religious element to all of this. Um, can we go through what eco-theology is um, just briefly? Yeah, sure. It's, uh, that, that concept has been around for a while. Um, um, and again, my mentor, Henrik Skolomowski, was, was quite prominent in that field as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the idea that, you know, uh, conventional theology, conventional religions are more or less defective and probably intellectually bankrupt. I mean, they're all 
they're all based on mythologies and and uh, false ideas and superstition and uh, and in some cases have been used as control and manipulation devices over people um which uh it, by some reading is a shame because there's this uh the core i guess you could say the core of theology is this idea that um you know, maybe there is something sort of precious and sacred in the world. Maybe there are kind of higher powers in the universe and in, in the earth that we don't quite understand. Um, we don't really understand what the human spirit really is, or, you know, whether we don't really know if we have a soul and, and whether other things in nature also might have souls. Um, so there, there's lots of questions about these things, and, and there's reasons to, to, to think that maybe we should respect and acknowledge these spiritual powers and the sacredness in the world, but we should do it in a way that's, say, not superstitious, not manipulative, uh, something that's, you know, for, for lack of a better word, that's, that's rational, right? Something that's based on the real world and maybe vaguely scientific in some sense or ecological in some sense. So there was a there was a movement in the last few decades by Skolomowski and, and others to take sort of what's what's good about theology and give it a firm ecological or evolutionary basis and and allow that to sort of inform our our striving for spirituality and for a sense of sacred and, and a sense of respect for the cosmos of which we are really a part of. So I, I guess maybe that's the, the sort of the general idea behind eco theology. It takes different forms depending on who who spells it out, right? But yeah, there's been some interesting people involved. Um, I didn't realize until I looked into it that Sayed Hossein Nasser, who was a famous traditionalist from the Sophia Perennis, who of course of that school being anti-modernistic and uh, and. Uh, and, and not progressive, I would say. But are you yourself, are you an atheist? I think I've seen a few videos online where you're arguing um, against uh, Christians. I, th I thought it was a Christian colleague of yours. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've come out as being quite a prominent uh, critic of Christianity in particular. I published a book a couple of years ago called The Jesus Hoax, uh, which you might find interesting or your your reader, your listeners might find interesting. Um so yeah, there's a there's a whole whole reason to to, to view Christianity specifically as uh, profoundly misguided, <laughs> and, and and really a, a, a sort of a kind of based in a manipulation that comes out of early Judaism. Um, so yeah, I, I've been uh, harshly critical of Christianity, but I mean I'm in a sense equally critical of Judaism and Islam. Uh, I really find no no basis for those religions at all. Um, I don't really describe myself as, a, as an atheist, um, pr probably because I'm more more of something like an eco theologian, if I could call myself that. What you know, what exactly that means kind of varies with my context. Sometimes I consider myself a pantheist, which sort of views the world or the universe itself as God. Sometimes I'm a, kind of a polytheist, you know, and I and I can kind of see see my way to to agree with the the ancient Greeks and Romans, and, and there are many gods out there, which, yeah, there's something to be said for that, right? Um, so, I, yeah, I, I kind of uh, change my uh, my religious outlook uh, depending on the context, if you will. But, yeah, not, not really an atheist per sure. se. So it sounds to me like um, what you're describing is kind of like a panpsychism 
um, effectively, where where everything in the universe kind of has a kind of awareness or meaning. Is that kind of what you how you look at things? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So this is one of my early areas of research, right? Panpsychism, which is every everything really sort of has a psychic quality or a mental quality to it. And that includes uh, obviously humans and animals, but it also includes plants uh, and uh, even non-living, what we would call non-living things uh, uh, or systems of things like, uh, like, like the earth as a whole or, uh, you know, the sun and the moon and the, and the, and the universe as a whole. So it's a, a whole interesting sort of uh, separate discussion. Maybe maybe we could have that one sometime. Sort of the basis for panpsychism, um, which is a kind of it is a kind of grounding for let's say a reverential uh, view of the world because you see these uh, all these entities in in nature as being psychic in 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 nature in a sense, and uh, that seems to demand that they are are viewed with. Uh, with inherent value that they have intrinsic value because of this quality, which we share to a, to a lesser degree. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I think these things, these things are, are integrated, this idea of panpsychism and an eco-theological outlook and, uh, generally an anti-technological outlook. I, I find some basis for integrating all these ideas. It, it reminded me very much, uh, reading Henrik's book of, uh, uh, I, I recently had a guest on that uh, did a book on Black Elk, who of course was a Lakota medicine man, and and it very much reminded me of an Indian uh, Native American worldview. Um, that's pretty much the way they saw things. I think um, it's kind of the way they saw the universe. That that yeah, exactly. Yeah. In fact, not not only them. Most it turns out most, uh, from what I understand, most primitive societies uh, viewed. Uh, uh, the world in, in what we would call an animist or or a panpsychist sort of uh, worldview, uh, and they would see these spiritual qualities in animals and in plants and in the woods and the ocean and the lakes and the and the rivers and the streams. So it's actually quite widespread throughout the world. Uh, many time in many different places and many different cultures uh, actually viewed the world that way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Well, it was it was interesting though when I was going through the book, and I'm, I'm fairly well acquainted with uh, say Buddhism. Um, or uh, uh, Vedanta um, and, and more Eastern religions, there didn't seem to me to be a huge amount of difference between the view presented in eco-theology and those uh, religions, basically what they are. Obviously, you have derivations later on that are you know, maybe a little bit different, but in essence, um, I felt that it was, it was quite similar, perhaps with more a, a naturist bent, would you agree with that, or am I missing something? Do you think? Uh, I think so. I know Skolomowski himself was always very sympathetic to, uh, in particular, Buddhist views. He, he found that quite quite compelling and saw a close affiliation with his own views. Uh, from what I know, and I, and I can't really comment because I don't know that them in detail. So, um, I mean, there's many things that are very very foreign to a Western outlook. And in some some ways, I think it's maybe hard to compare those views, even though they seem to agree on a number of points. Um, so certainly there seems to be some overlap and some, some common sympathies there. Um, I, but like I say, in, in my case, I'm, I'm not, I don't really feel qualified to, to really give a good uh, analysis of of that overlap, just because I'm not that familiar with the Eastern philosophies. 
One of the other things he goes he goes and discusses in this book is this idea of the predeterminism of religion um, versus a kind of universal evolutionism, I guess. That's, it seems to be a critical difference, right? Um, and, and that it's kind of important to discard predeterministic thinking um, uh, in this eco-theology. I think it's a pretty important distinction. Um, where do you sit on this? Because I, I've always struggled with this question. Um, and obviously, it's a massive question. I mean, how, you know, how could we possibly probably ever know? But so even even from a scientific viewpoint, you have people like uh, maybe Sam Harris, uh, who's a prominent uh, thinker that thinks that people don't really have free will, that we have uh, predetermined hereditary and environmental forces that uh, compel us to behave in a certain way. But in eco-theology, there seems to be a kind of a process of individual uh, growth and theurgical uh, process in which the individual engages in taking responsibility for their impact in the world and, and various other things. Where, where do you stand on this question of predeterminism versus evolutionism in, in eco-theology? Yeah, well, it's it's a it's an interesting and a and a it's a difficult topic, frankly. Um, Skull, I think you're right. Skolmowski, for sure, he viewed the the universe as this creative process, right? Evolution was a creative process, and and this goes back to earlier thinkers like Teilhard and Bergson, uh, and, and some guys like that who who really saw you know really evolution is always bringing new creative utterly new things into the world, new forms, new ideas, new structures. Um, and so for Skolomowski and some others, this is, this is like the real model, right? Human creativity is a small version of this cosmic creativity, and the universe uh, sort of has unlimited possibilities, and, and in a sense, so do we. And therefore, that we have to act uh, deliberately and with responsibility in this, in this sort of creative, creative way to... to positively construct the world you know that we that we want to live in and and i mean there's lots of uh, lots to be said for that it's a very inspiring view um you know the other the other side is the deterministic piece right in the more that you sort of understand science and how evolution works and and the scientific worldview you really come to some compelling arguments that says well, like you say, that really human free will is a kind of a, a kind of an illusion uh, or, or a falsehood that we've somehow come to believe that's that's not factually true, um, <clears throat> which doesn't really leave any room potentially for human creative action, may, may, maybe any action at all. If we're really fully determined, we're just sort of playing out, uh, you know, sort of the the cosmic program, and, and we're just kind of, you know, following along without even realizing it. Um, which is, it sounds a little bit depressing, but but the rational arguments tend to push us in that direction, I think. And and there are actually very strong arguments today in philosophy, which which in fact says that humans do not really have free will in, in the sense that they, that they typically understand it. Um, you know, my, my own view is probably somewhere in between that uh, be, because of this funny dichotomy between the, the, the what appears to be, and it seems that we have sort of this absolute free will, but the very strong arguments against the free will 
to me suggests that somehow the whole debate is mistaken or needs to, to shift in a different direction. It seems like we need to somehow maybe transcend this idea. Maybe it's, maybe it's a mistake to even talk about this, you know, sort of free will versus deterministic, um, uh, you know, worldview and, and to think in a new direction. And that's, that that's kind of where I've come down on this issue. I, you know, what that new direction is, I, I guess I don't, I don't really have a good answer yet, but it's, to me, it seems like those, those sort of old dichotomies maybe, maybe are fallacious in some sense. And that it's, it's a kind of a false problem that we're trying to solve and we need to think in a new way about it. Mm. So the question is a problem, not, not the answer then. Yeah, maybe exactly. I exactly. agree with that. I think. Um, and so part of this idea of this, uh, evolving universe, um, is, is this idea that you you have complexity, ever increasing complexity throughout the universe on, on like an energetic level. Um, would you therefore say that maybe technology is an inevitable consequence of this ever increasing complexity of energy throughout the universe? Is that, am I picking up on something here in this? Uh, because it, it seemed to be a big feature of that book. Yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly right. In fact, in fact, that's one of the main themes of my my books, Metaphysics of Technology, is that is, is that the growing complexity in the universe is manifest as uh, well, first material complexity in terms of heavier elements, and then as compl uh, biological complexity, right? Is this is animal complexity, and then ultimately a social complexity, and then technological complexity. This is all part of a spectrum of growing complexity in the universe. In, in a sense, this is a very natural and, and maybe an, an inevitable process that we're dealing with. And in my book, I've, I've said this is precisely why we're having such problems with technology, because it's, it operates like a law of nature. And it, and, it, and it presses ahead sort of with this power and this force that, that we don't really understand and, and which sort of has this inevitability to it. And I think, I think that's wise because it's grounded in these natural forces of increasing complexity. And I think it's part and parcel of that whole, that whole grand process. And that, that makes it extraordinarily difficult to, to deal with. Not impossible, uh, but it makes it much harder for us to, to deal with this phenomenon. So, yeah, it's almost <clears throat> in a sense that the dichotomy between a human and technology, technology simply just being an extension of the human nervous system in some sense, um, it's, it's kind of par for the course. Is that what you're saying? Like it's going to be difficult to uh, get rid of for yeah, that yeah. reason. Yeah. Well, yeah, right. And in, in a sense, it's like, it's, I mean, you could say like a new life form or something. It's not really a life form. It's more than that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a new sort of a, a level of functioning, level of complexity, which is above us if we want to think a hierarchical. You know, you have relatively low, low level, lower levels, simpler levels of complexity in the simpler organisms and, and in inanimate matter. Um, but the technological complexity seems to be working over our heads, uh, so to speak. Uh, it, but I, I still think it's part of the same process of, of, of a structure coming into being, increasing structure as long as the energy flows uh, allow them, which which happens throughout the universe. Uh, it, you know, we happen to be in sort of the ideal spot here on the Earth where we have uh, fluid matter and energy in terms of uh, you know air and water and so forth, and we have the 
the uh, inflowing energy from the sun, which is constantly driving the process forward. And uh, yeah, I think in, in a sense, uh, under those conditions, life is probably inevitable. Complex life is inevitable and, and technological life, if you will, that's also inevitable. Obviously, you have guys like Ray Kurzweil and um, yeah, Elon Musk, I suppose, who everyone seems to love. Um, how do you think all their things are going to turn out? Are we going to reach a point of no return? Are we going to get to Mars? Are any of these, these things possible? I mean, or are we going to hit like a, a, a limitation? Like there's something built into the DNA of the human being that we just can't get to those levels that we're going to, we're going to stop. There's like a, a mechanism that'll, it'll bring us back. How, how do you see all that? I mean, do it, it yeah, it, it might more likely is, is we'll get hit by a technological disaster or a catastrophe that will stop us. This is this is sort of my uh, my my thinking. Um, there are so many different disaster scenarios related to advancing technology. You know whether it's you know genetically engineered uh, viruses that uh, you know cause a catastrophic pandemic that wipes out most of the human race, um, or you know it could be killer drones, or it could be runaway nano replicating devices. Uh, it could be just uh, advanced AI that somehow seizes hold of the whole internet and the global economy. Um, I mean. There, there's multiple scenarios, right, where advancing technology uh, uh, really leads leads to the end end of things, uh, at least on a high scale. That uh, I, I think uh, you know our, our our event horizon is probably a few decades out at best, and and some of these you know grand schemes about uh, you know colonizing Mars and flying around the galaxy or whatever. I mean that's. Uh, I think we will get hit by a catastrophe uh, well before that happens. So we probably need not worry about those things, <laughs> and we should more likely worry about just just surviving. This would be my case. In, in fact, it's, I mean, it's, it's you know, I, I was just going to say it's, it's sort of interesting because there's this, this thing called the Fermi paradox. I don't know if you're familiar with this idea. Yeah, so the Fermi paradox says, why are there not uh, extraterrestrial civilizations, right? Why, why aren't they flying around in spaceships all over the place? And why, why don't we see these guys all over, or at least through our telescopes? We don't see any advanced civilizations anywhere or no evidence of these things. And, and one of the explanations is because they all su succumb to technological catastrophe when they get to the point where they were maybe about to be able to become visible Cosmically, they, they, they run into one of these technological catastrophes, which either destroys them or drives them down to such a simple level that, uh, that they're basically invisible. We're not, we're not going to see, uh, you know, a, a planet of hunter-gatherers, uh, you know, 100 light years away. There, there's no sign that they can give off sort of short of going there. Um, so this is sort of what I've argued for in my book is that um, the reason, the, the explanation for the Fermi paradox and why there are no advanced civilizations is because they're all they're all getting wiped out by advanced technology and and therefore we ought not hope to be the one that's out there, you know, colonizing the universe when when probably we will uh, far more likely hit one of these major roadblocks and we should be preparing for that and how to survive that if only at a low level, rather than spending time and money on these, these grand schemes, which will almost certainly never, never come to fruition. One of the more controversial theories I've come across recently um, includes the or evidence that human intelligence is rapidly declining. Um, and that's as a result of those selective pressures not being applied anymore. 
I, I have this idea that as a result of that decline in human intelligence, that we just simply won't have the cognitive manpower to get there in time. That's that's kind of the way I'm looking at things. Yeah. Well, exactly right. I mean, right. I, I, you know, in, in a sense, that is one of those technological disaster scenarios is that we, is that we become so, uh, you know, so genetically uh, degraded by our own, the, by an accumulation of the errors within the human species that we, in a sense, we are no longer able to function, certainly not at a collective level, uh, at, a, at a high level. So the, you're right. That alone could, could, could bring a, bring a screeching halt to, uh, you know, a, these grand schemes that, that some of these people have. Yeah. So it sounds like eco-theology then is, is very much like I tend to view the world and history in cyclical terms myself. I'm not, not really a progressivist in the sense that I think that we're, we're heading towards some predetermined destination and that hu humanity's uh, fate is inevitable, like many people seem to think. And I find that interesting that maybe some of these technologists are kind of functioning with a, a pseudo-Christian progressivist view of things, but they've kind of replaced the end times with a, a kind of vision of uh, the perfect amalgamation of, of humanity and machine, it seems. It's, it's kind of almost religious, the way that these guys are looking at things, I feel. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Uh, you know, particularly in this transhumanist movement, right, where where we're supposed to sort of become, you know, superhumans or human superhuman cyborgs or some kind of crazy, uh, you know, or, or get your mind uploaded into into cyberspace and you expand from there or some something like that. And yeah, I mean, it's it's a sort of sort of crazy and and awe inspiring, and it and it can sound like kind of kind of a new religion or a, a new kind of salvation right i mean this is really how they're casting these things um but um yeah you know uh, uh, again I, I to me that's that's on uh, on par with you know colonizing mars and uh, you know flying to the to the stars and all this stuff i, I um to, to me we, we will hit one of these major uh roadblocks far sooner than we will be able to uh, realize any of these uh, you know gr grand uh, quasi-religious uh, schemes of Kurzweil and those guys so um, I guess we should probably think about finishing off um, are there any any other kind of things that you, you think are important in, in terms of Ted's writings, eco-theology how this all fits apart and I'd also like to start talking about maybe things that people can do in their everyday life. Cause I, I, I like Ted, I'm a really practical kind of guy. <laughs> so, so I like, um, I like the idea of having practical solutions for people to uh, look at maybe sources of information people can uh, approach to start integrating some of these things into their lifestyles and, and the way they, they approach the world perhaps. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things we can do. I mean, you know, we can all inform ourselves a little bit better of what's going on, right? This is this is one of the things I've tried to do in my writings, uh, both in my uh, the book, The Metaphysics of Technology, and there's another reader that I recently published on Amazon called Confronting Technology. It's a collection of historical criticisms of technology over the last few hundred years, primarily, um, and it, it covers a lot of these themes that we talked about. And... Uh, I think it's important for people to to read these things to become informed about 
what this thing is, this technological phenomenon is, and to become aware of the prominent critics that have existed throughout history. Uh, it's striking, you know, it's not just uh, Kaczynski or the, the, the crazy Luddites, you know, in the 1800s. It's, it's a lot of major intellectual thinkers and, and writers and philosophers who have been highly critical of even much simpler technology than we have today. And it's really remarkable to read some of these views. And that, this is why I put out this book, Confronting Technology, to, to let people read it and to become aware of these, these long-standing critiques. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's one thing we can all do is, is learn a little bit more about this phenomenon, uh, what's going on. Uh, obviously, you want to practice things that are limiting your own your own harm. I think when I talk to people, students, young, younger people in particular, they're 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 experiencing these problems of spending so much time on cell phones and laptops and social media and so forth. And I think they're starting to realize that th this is detrimental to their well-being. It's not making them feel good. It's taking time. It's causing stress. It's maybe making them depressed and anxious. Um, you know, there's a whole host of problems that comes with these th these technologies. Um, you know, one thing I, I try to do is I sort of keep my my own involvement to a to a minimum as much as I can. For example, I don't really have a cell phone, um, which which actually people find hard to, to believe, but but I actually actually I, I don't. I mean, I have one one that I borrow uh, when I need it on a trip uh, now and then, and I shut it off, and then I, I go without a without a without a phone. Um, so I basically do without a cell phone. I'm not on social media at all unless somebody puts me there, but I don't, I don't do it. Uh, I do, I have a little personal website, um, you know, and then I appear on various YouTube videos, uh, over time and I'm in, in a couple of, uh, uh, documentaries, particularly on Kaczynski. So, you know, I have these appearances, uh, that I, that I do basically to stay engaged with people and to try to get get the word out that there's these problems which are not being examined and discussed. Um, so, um, but, you know, everybody sort of has to find their own limit and, and try to keep it to a minimum. This is always my advice. You know, it's, it's, you can really, you can really do a lot, even in the modern world with really very little, relatively little technological involvement. So uh, I try to encourage people to do that. And particularly uh, people with uh, young children, to, which to me is particularly a problem area. Uh, the schools, particularly with the whole virus thing, they're pushing all, even the youngest kids into these online schools and they're having to use laptops. And I mean, this is this is a disaster. This is terrible, right? It's establishing these habits for even in very young children that that uh, the means to their education and welfare is through technology. And that's a, that's a horrible lesson to be, be passing along to our younger generation. So uh, I kept my own two children relatively unengaged with technology when they were younger, and I would uh, definitely recommend that for people sure. today. Um, great advice. Um, just quickly, um, you mentioned you have a new book coming up. Um, would you like to plug that, maybe some other projects that you have going on? Um, I'll provide links, of course, for everyone uh, afterwards. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, Right. Well, I, I, again, I keep a very simple website, uh, davidscurbina.com, which, uh, which maybe you can provide a link if people are curious, just to have some of my writings. Um, you know, the, of the major works that we talked about uh, would be the Metaphysics of Technology book, Panpsychism of the West on that field, um, you know, for the critiques of uh, Christianity, the Jesus hoax book. 
Um, I also, on my website, I'm also, because I'm editing some of the Skolomowski books and, and re republishing those that went out of print, those are also available on my website. Um, the one chapter of a forthcoming book, I just have a chapter in the book. It's not, it's not my book, but the book is called Sustainability Beyond Technology. And it will be, it will be out in March. It's a major publisher, Oxford University Press, one of the top ones in the world. Uh, and I have a chapter on creative reconstruction, which is rolling back uh, modern technology by 800 years. And I, I make the case in that book uh, as a part of a the, the theme of the book is, you know, how can we really achieve real sustainability without without technology, without looking to technological solutions to all of our problems, which are mostly technological problems in the first place. So the, the theme of the book is new ways to envision what it means to be sustainable or to create a sustainable society and to do it without a reliance on advanced technology. So that book will right. be out early next well, year. Thank you, David, again. This has been amazing. I got a lot out of this. Um, this is probably, you're one of the few people I've spoken to that actually has uh, solutions. Like pl plenty of people are good at pointing out problems, but um, so far I've, I've not heard any convincing uh, arguments or, or solutions. So I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this and I also enjoyed the, the more theological elements. And uh, yeah, I'd love to even do it maybe again sometime, focus on, on some, other, some other areas we didn't uh, get to. Yeah, there's so, several leads that we could follow there, uh, Alex. And I'm uh, sure I'd be glad to come on again and, and, and uh, talk in some detail about the other topics as well. Yeah, great. Okay. So in the meantime, everyone, I will provide links uh, to books and websites. And uh, yeah, uh, thanks for coming on, David. It was it was excellent. Thank you. My pleasure.